Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. I'm Jess Miles and in this episode, my co-presenter Richard Kemp speaks to Simon Winlow and Steve Hall about their book, The Death of the Left. Richard, Simon and Steve talk about the book's bold assertion that the only way to resurrect what was once valuable in leftist politics is to declare the left dead and begin from the beginning again. More information about the book is available from bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. The left is dead. This is a phrase we hear often in modern day politics. Opinion writers use it to describe a bungled power grab or lackluster campaign or to analyze why the red wall continues to crumble. This phrase though, the left is dead, is usually delivered with the understanding of, but we can revive it. In their new book, The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin from the Beginning Again, Simon Winlow, professor of social science at Northumbria University, and Steve Hall, emeritus professor of criminology at Teesside University, argue that not only is the left dead, but that to revive it in its current form would do nothing to help. The left has been buried for a long time, and what we see today, what claims to be the left, hardly resembles it at all. The sooner we accept this and start over, the authors say, the sooner we can get to the real root causes of what killed the left in the first place. Simon Winlow and Steve Hall, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Hi, good morning. I absolutely loved reading your book, um, and I also was just, um, there was so much, there was so much in there left, right, neoliberalism, culture, economics, just so much that I didn't realize I didn't even know. So um, it was a real, it was a real page turner all the way, all the way to the very end. I absolutely loved reading your book. Um, you say in the very beginning of the book that you take no pleasure in writing it. Why, why is that? Well, uh, the, the, the reason is quite simply that we're, we're both were of the traditional left. So we're, we're seeing an old friend die. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we, we we're mourning the death of of something that we were committed to for most of our younger lives, mm-hmm. and we our commitment came from the perspective of, of um, our working class heritage. We were both born into the working class, myself and and uh, uh, in County Durham, and, and and Simon over towards the coast in in Sunderland. It's once mm-hmm. part of the same county in County Durham. Um, so we're quite close to each other. And we saw the left that represented our families for generations and, and made their lives tolerable um, mm. compared to the lives of, uh, you know, older mem- older generations before 1945, for instance, uh, who were yeah. subjected to fairly brutal forms of exploitation, bad health, ed- ed- poor education. And, you know, this is a familiar story. I don't need to go into mm. all of the details. The, the left made life better for uh, our families after 1945. And then right. um, after 1979, it, it seemed to be unable to continue that. And and, and, and it was uh, making, uh, you know, it wasn't making anyone's life worse because it was never in power, but it couldn't seem mm. to offer anything uh, to... Um, ourselves and 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 the, and the people we know and the people we belong to so it, it's we're mourning the death of a of something that was very dear to us yeah i definitely uh definitely felt that all the way through reading the book that it's a grieving process that you were going through it's uh um it also um um 
for me, it's um, it kind of felt like a, a what what could have been for me reading it since I, I didn't live through any real what I feel to be glory days of traditional left. Yes. And so for me, it was just just um, yeah, re- reading about reading about things that had happened. I wish that they could be, and also reading about potential. I wish it was now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, one of the the book is quite a sad tale, but, um, you know, we need the left more than we ever have done now. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, growing forms of inequality, uh, all kinds of economic changes, global economic changes, uh, and of course, any last vestiges of security that the working class have been able to rely on. Mm-hmm. post 2008 economic crisis are gradually wearing away even further and uh you know the for the for the in the vast majority of cases the left has nothing to say about the economic foundations upon which all of us build our lives and i think that's a, a really tragic thing yeah absolutely i mean if, if we look at the, the stunning success of the center left uh, in, mm-hmm. uh, in 1945 I remember being at a conference once and, and the um, uh, social scientists were celebrating the 60s as the radical generation. Well, the nice. 60s left us with nothing, <laughs> apart from a few drug habits and interesting sexually transmitted diseases. There's, there's nothing much in a, in a couple of nice uh, couple of nice Beatles tunes. I, I can't <laughs> think of anything particularly great coming out of the 60s. And a friend of ours, Keith Haywood, uh, argued that, in fact, the 1940s, the late 1940s, after the war was the most radical right. In the left history, the, the legacy of that is incredible. National Health Service, nationalization of industry, state mm. earnings related pensions, mm-hmm. education system, Wilson moving forward 20 years later with the polytechnics. Mm. Um, the, 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 that was the most stable period in, in, in our history. And, and, and the left had a huge part. It was so successful that when the Conservative Party got back in 1951, they had to follow suit. They had to, <laughs> they had to maintain that program right through. <laughs> Until um, until Nixon, you know, abandoned the, the Bretton Woods Agreement, and and we went into stagflation and recession, and we trouble, we're in big trouble. And then the neoliberals were ideologically, you know, they had the mass media in their hands, and they were ready to pounce and and you know put Thatcher in and and return to mm. um, the life before 1945, which was all about big business, banging mm-hmm. investment, and um, global overreach of, uh, uh, of the bankers, you know, controlling mm. the global economy rather than the democratic state having an input into the control of our economy. Because that was that was the real legacy of 1945. We had some control. And uh, the, the, the public investment in infrastructure, nationalised industries, um, let's say they were relatively successful apart, <clears throat> apart from British Leyland, which probably <laughs> should, never, should never have happened, having one sat in an Austin Allegro. Um, it, it probably should never have happened, but, but um, it, it was hugely successful. And also Roosevelt, don't forget, had preempted us. The, the Americans beat us to it in, in mm-hmm. 1937 with the New Deal project. In fact, Roosevelt right. was the, the first to accept Keynesian um, uh, proposals about demand management in the economy. How to, you know, Henry Ford knew, knew this. Henry Ford once mm-hmm. said, what's the point of paying my workers' wages that are too low to be before the cars they make. There's no point in manufacturing. <laughs> so when you have this today generation of of, of um, libertarian 
um, conservatives because the conservative party is dead as well. So I, I, mm. I, I welcome mm. my conservative friends to mourn the death of their, 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 <laughs> their tradition too, because that's dead. Neoliberalism killed both. And now we have Jeremy Hunt saying you can't book the markets. We have Truss and Quarting, who Quarting's uh, gone, thankfully, and mm. Truss is probably out of the door in, the, in, in a couple <laughs> of weeks, the most disastrous premiership we've seen. Uh, um, what, 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 you know, they're saying that you must incentivize people by cutting taxes and, 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 and you know in fact the Labour Party put up taxes in 1945 because economies are driven first and foremost by demand if there's no demand in the economy there's no production we learned that lesson from Keynes and we should have followed through uh, but we didn't we let the neoliberals take over and the mm. left simply laid down and died and it shifted into the the dimension of culture rather than economics the left was always focused principally on economics. I once read a tweet a while ago, which was the most succinct thing I've ever read. He <laughs> said, the Labour Party should concentrate on wages, conditions, and that's it. <laughs> once it broadens its horizon yeah. beyond that, you've lost the population because people care about the stability of their families, their, their, their yep. housing, education, all of those everyday things that, that, that you know, that... that um, the cultural theorists find a little rather boring, um, are, are absolutely essential to everyone. And this is what the left, this was the left's primary focus from its mm -hmm. from its beginnings in the 19th century through to the 1980s when it began to shift that focus. And it was that shift in focus that was, I think, one of the main uh, things that killed it. <clears throat> yeah, you were, uh, um, you say that's some, um, a main theme in your book is about um, the, the shift of both um, both the conservatives are shifting away from traditional conservatism and the um yeah and, and labor is shifting from their traditional left um and that um you talk you talk a lot about how they they neither has has adversaries anymore um that um conservatives are now focused on neoliberal policies and the and and oh, sorry the right is now focused on neoliberal policies the left is now focused on culture um and i guess i was just i was just wondering what what do you mean by the left is focusing on culture and you also say about, uh, and, and I wonder how does that divide now benefit the elites? Do you want me to, 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 to yeah, I'll yeah, kick that off. Um, yeah, well, well, of course, it was um, the future of socialism, I think, written in the late 1950s, argued that um, the left needs to focus on youth culture, on rebellious symbolism. It, it, it shifted from economic policies into sort of cultural symbolism. It's about, you know, pop music and the ra radical ideas that can be put across by mass media and, and, and all the rest of it. Stuart Hall, in, in the book I wrote, an introduction to the New Left Review, when he tell you, I was saying we must focus on youth, the rebellious youth in the street, you know. I think mm -hmm. we've been watching too many Marlon Brando movies. Maybe we thought that uh, sort of rebellious uh, youth would would be the the foundation of, of um, well, well, you know, uh, Alan Hansen was wrong to say the kids never won the Premiership. Then I famous year in nineteen ninety six when Manchester United won, but kids never win politics. <laughs> kids are kids. Kids are t teenagers. Are teenagers? They're lovely. I love them. I was once one myself. Believe it or not, <laughs> and, uh, you know they're they're wonderful, and and they they have all sorts of um imagine you know very imaginative cultural lives, and and they have yeah. wonderful music, and they're very inventive. But it's nothing to do with politics. Most of them, when they're 25, 30, settle down and get jobs as insurance agents and what have you, are just part of the system. Mm -hmm. And we should know that the left should never have been so romantic and to, to you know, to, to dismiss the idea that people just grow up. There's, youth are not are not effective 
um, politicians. They have things to say and they should be listened to, absolutely, mm -hmm. but they're not mm -hmm. effective politicians. So the left was composed mainly of elders in, in, in the old days, and their elders were very effective because they knew the game. Clement Attlee was a wonderful operator. I mean, he really knew how to operate systems. Bevan was the, and Iron Bevan was the heart of the Labour Party, and Attlee was its brains, the fixer, going around committees and getting things done and sorting things out. You need that sort of person back. And consummate popular politicians that we had in the 1950s and conservative politicians were, were had most <laughs> they had more gravitas too you could actually <laughs> believe harold Macmillan. you think well he's a conservative i don't particularly like him but he's going to get things done and he did continue mm. the, the the you know that that post-war keynesian program and it was relatively successful we were in a bad position in, in lots of ways we our, our industry was growing old. We lacked investment. We, were un, we weren't productive enough. We should have done what the Germans did and used the martial aid money to actually refurbish British industry from the 1960s and bring it, drag it into the modern age. But we didn't. Um, mm. And the, we didn't do that because we lost focus on the economy and we started to fixate on culture. And now the left is about most of the discourse in social sciences, across the arts, humanities and universities, across social media and mass media is all about culture. Mm. It's about it's about race, gender, mm. sexuality, youth. It's about symbols and, and ideas and nothing mm. much about the economy. When they do talk about the economy, they appear to be economically illiterate. They don't understand <laughs> how economies work and how fiat systems, which we've had since 1971, how they work, mm -hmm. the, the, the power of the, 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 the sovereign, uh, the state's sovereign currency issue, what it can do with that, how it can refurbish the country. They don't seem to understand any of it. They're mm -hmm. so fixated on culture. Yeah, the, uh, um, I think my, before, before getting into this book of, of yours, um, Stephen Simon, um, I, I was having, I was, I was, I was being, I felt like I was being challenged a lot in my understanding of the left, um, and I didn't realize how much my understanding of the left was culture-based and not economics, economics-based. You were, uh, you made a great, a great argument all the way through. Just, uh, yeah, just, um, and and succinctly put by that tweet earlier that you that you mentioned, Steve, about. Uh, um, uh, can you repeat that again, please? It, well, I, I can't remember the verbatim, but it's, it said something like, "The left should focus on wages." and conditions mm. only and that it and that's it everything yeah. else secondary it's not that everything else is unimportant but that yeah. is the focus and that yeah. affects everyone whether you're black white woman man or whatever that affects yeah. everyone having a stable life being able to plan mm. for the future having a decent house having a, having a job having money coming in that you can mm. rely on being able, might have a could even have a couple of kids you know mm -hmm. We might reproduce the next generation. These are absolute basics. These are timeless basics of human life. And once you abandon that, then people start thinking, well, do I trust these people? You know, is this, yeah. is this something? Do these people advocate for? Do they support me? Are they on my side? And they, they, mm. then so, so the swing voters that, the, you know, the, both parties rely on start to shift over to the other side or they abstain. I don't know, Simon had some figures at one point about how many people just don't bother to vote because they're voting for the least worst parties. That's the way you put it, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. With um, um, you also in your book, you talk you talk a lot about class um, and uh, um, and that's something that was definitely interesting to me. And I've heard it heard it said a lot in, in um, reports and opinion pieces and stuff about how the, the left is losing the working class, but 
you uh, you really get into it so I could actually actually understand what what is going on there. Um, you you argue that the the left misunderstands the working class, um, perfectly illustrated by the Brexit Leave vote shocking the neoliberal side of the left. Um, while journalists were comparing working class nostalgia to dreams of empire, working class people are actually thinking back to a time when life was fairer. Has the left ever been genuinely interested in the needs of the working class? Well, it's a very tricky thing. I think the first thing we have to recognize is the left, especially in Britain, was established to represent the economic interests of the working class. So if you look mm. back to the 19th century, mm. early socialism started the first trade union movements. These were purely focused upon the economic well-being of the British working class. The goal was to address forms of obvious injustice. And of course, that during those years, there were material disadvantage was very difficult uh, you know, for us to fully comprehend it in the 21st century. But the left set out to represent the interests of the working class. The conservatives and the liberals represented the middle classes and the aristocracy and the business elites. So this, you know, the Labour Party, for example, is purely about the working class. It had working class representatives. Mm -hmm. Actually, all of its MPs were working class. The trade union movement, overwhelmingly working class. But even in the 19th century, the British left was always forced to deal with the presence of the liberal middle classes within the heart of their movement. Mm -hmm. So there were always key advocates and uh, you know uh, uh, campaigners who were part of the broad left who were principally concerned not with the economic well-being of the working class, diverse even then, but rather upon the various forms of cultural injustice that offended their sensibilities particularly. Mm -hmm. So they saw the left not as a movement to create economic equality for all people, but rather as an opportunity to kind of stamp down upon forms of uh, cultural activity that kind of offended them in some way. Right. And, and so the left has always been, especially in Britain, this kind of the co competition between these two groups and mm -hmm. the boundaries shifted enormously, of course, and I'm generalizing. But the left, you know, lots of trade unionists in the 19th century kind of, you know, they, they didn't really want the middle class to be out front and leading. There was no reason for middle class radicals to take a position of leadership in what was then a very working class movement. Mm -hmm. And as we move into the 20th century, the liberal middle classes began to assert themselves in virtually every sphere of the British left. It becomes very much more active in trade union movements. Mm -hmm. It begins to de develop, develop and diversify its range of campaigning activities. Mm. Of course, as we move through the middle of the 20th century, it becomes absolutely dominant in the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's virtually incredibly difficult for me to identify uh, a working class voice anywhere in the British right. Labour Party. And I think that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think it tends because the, the left now is overwhelmingly liberal, not socialist, but liberal. And middle class. Uh, and this leads them to misrepresent and misunderstand the working class. Mm. And I think Brexit, the Brexit vote is a, a you know a case in point because you have leftist radicals saying that the working class are 
thoughtless bovine herd being led around by the right-wing media <laughs> and, you know, potentially fascistic in their sure, sure. cultural tendencies. Mm-hmm. They're positioning the working class not as the, 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 the heart of the left, the group that needs to be defended, but actually a problem for the left, mm-hmm. a problem for the left to weed out and destroy, which is absurd. <laughs> Absolutely absurd. Right. It's a de- I have to con- conclude it's a deliberate misrepresentation of the reality of working class life. Mm. Of course, I make the point, as we make numerous points in the book, mm. uh, that the, mo- the working class is multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm, and of mm-hmm. course, it contains, it's huge, it contains every type of sexuality you care to mention. Mm-hmm. And all of those groups, because of their working class status, worry mm. about wages uh, you know, the economic welfare of their families and the people mm. that they don't care about. Right. So the idea that, you know, the working class aren't bothered about, you know, cultural issues is mm-hmm. to misunderstand the situation. Mm-hmm. Their insecurities are principally economic, however, and that's what that issue cuts across all ethnic groups, all mm. kind of uh, groups of sexualities and whatever. Mm issue of economic inequality and economic justice bonds all these groups together and that's what's been missing from the left in recent years right right that leads us quite nicely actually into um another question i've got here in response to campaigns of anti-racism anti-sexism anti-homophobia corporations have spent the last few years installing diverse hiring practices and unconscious bias training into their cultures you write how this work is surface level because diversity in terms of class isn't being increased. On the whole, the people they hire are still university educated and still accept the neoliberal agenda, creating a cultural homogeneity. Plus, I might add that it's generally the workers who create and install these practices. Are businesses using diversity campaigns as a distraction from the economic issues? Well, I'm not sure that the distraction is the right word, but let me put it this way. If the Lockheed Martin armament corporation um, can hijack um, the cultural issues that the left has brought into being as as a means of selecting workers and selecting management Mm. and to broadcast their virtue across the world as progressive, then there's something wrong. Would you you say there's something not quite right there? And I think that the, what's the, 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 I think the problem was, was put very succinctly by the American uh, feminist thinker, uh, Nancy Fraser, and she called it progressive neoliberalism. It might have even been neoliberal progressivism. I, I tend to forget things at my age, I don't know, but it's one of the two. Progressive neoliberalism means the same thing. And that neoliberalism, which is a, which is a, a business-focused, global, uh, an investment-focused doctrine. And it's about an enticing investors to gamble their money and then wherever in the world you can produce stuff at the lowest prices at the best quality. And, and, and it's a free trade doctrine, uh, even though we know there's no such thing. So uh, this doctrine has incorporated the cultural aspects of the left very, very easily. And it can now put itself forward as the champion of all mm. of these things that once the left campaign for including me i went in every march you can imagine in the 70s and uh you know anti-racism i was a member of the Tyneside anti-fascist association and all, all of this stuff i did as a virtuous young man protesting mm-hmm. and 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 um making quite clear what i believed in what i was against 
mm-hmm. um, uh, w- was easily hijacked by, by, they even hijacked anti-fascism because of course free trade can be seen, can be presented as the opposite of fascism, which is a very territorial nation-based idea, isn't it? You know, so free right. trade is against fascism. We are against everything bad. And uh, well, mm-hmm. that, that was once our job to be against everything bad because, <laughs> you know, that, that's what the left was about. And uh, we were against the, about the, against the bad things that were happening to working people. But if it's mm-hmm. been so easily hijacked by, by the right, but of course what they've left out is, is class. They just don't mm. talk about class. And some social scientists, one social scientist, um, quite very succinctly, credit where it's due, um, uh, said that, you know, class is now a failed analytic. What he means by that is it's, it's no longer a category we should use when we're thinking about social relations. Mm. It doesn't exist. Even John Prescott once said that um, we're all middle class now. I don't think John did a very good job appearing middle class to you somehow, but, uh, you know, <laughs> all the same, that's, that's what he was told to say, maybe, and that's what he said he was he believed uh, yeah. that, that with abandoned class. So it, the corporations have have hijacked this and recruited all these ideas so very, and, and use it to select workers so mm. they can get rid of annoying um, people who want want a set of, of trade unions and who might mm-hmm. protest at wages quite easily by saying, "Oh, you're a racist or you're a sexist. We don't like the way that you talk to to women," and and, and off they go. So mm-hmm. it, it, it it's been so easily incorporated. It's actually quite amusing. If it wasn't for serious, it's quite funny watching this sort of thing happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and and I hate to say this, but we're, but di- didn't we, Simon? We predicted this a long time ago. Of course, mm-hmm. we're working class, and and everyone uh, ignores us. If if, if um you know if social scientists don't ignore Winlow and Hall, then they're not being proper social scientists. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> job to ignore us which and we are shining examples of how working class people have been ignored in institutions for 150 years Uh here we are sitting here generally ignored but this book will put all of that right because i think Mm. we put all of this very very clearly i think you agree and and Mm -hmm. anyone who who disagrees with it well you know then then let's have the argument let's let's get this out in the open quite yeah i'd like to see that the one thing I would add is that economic inequality is the only form of inequality that can't be simply kind of seamlessly uh, you know, addressed by corporate capitalism. You know, corporations, right. Lockheed Martin is a great example of Disney and all these huge corporations, you know, huge economic power. Mm-hmm. They can present themselves, launder their reputation. Uh, by saying we're going to have more women in the boardroom, we're going to have more ethnic minorities uh, at all levels of the corporation. Mm -hmm. And it can adopt, you know, it can be seen to address those cultural inequalities. Right. The one thing it can't get over is the fact that its business model is rooted upon economic exploitation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's going to have more kind of uh, uh, marginalised cultural groups in the boardrooms, but it's still going to pay its lowest wages, kind of minimum wage, uh, barely subsistence level wages, wherever it is yeah. possible to do so. It's also going to ex- outsource labour to developing countries wherever it can be. Right. These corporations are known for that, decimating mm-hmm. former industrial areas, plunging mm-hmm. populations into poverty. So, you know, they present themselves as being a kind of corp- progressive corporate citizenship. 
mm-hmm. at the same time as a really hyper aggressive form of economic exploitation, which is the core of their business model. And this is what we're seeing with kind of what's called rainbow capitalism, you know, this kind of kind of left-leaning corporate, you know, strategy to try and make us all think that these huge corporations, these with huge economic power are actually out there fighting for everyday people. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're uh, um, they are they're fighting a good fight on paper and on their websites in terms of um, in terms of the the difference they're making within their company when it comes to um, I said in a, what we were talking earlier. I mean about hiring practices and and biases and things like that. But what they're not prepared to do is they're not prepared to dig into their profits and um, and um, uh, so support their workers, support their workers more fairly. Many of these guys are multimillionaires, some billionaires, lecturing mm. ordinary workers about the need to be uh, more progressive in their cultural attitudes. Or you don't get jobs. Yeah. Whenever we're sitting listening to a billionaire tell us about you know being progressive and caring for others, Mm. we should we should pause and think about whether we're heading in the right direction. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I think just to add that the economic exploitation Simon was talking about, the anti-union practices, or is this geopolitical hostility? I mean, Lockheed Martin make weapons and, and, and weapons systems and mm-hmm. you, you know I, I bet the people of Libya or Afghanistan feel um, re- really good about the fact that the bombs dropping down on them are made by women or you know the women sitting on the board <laughs> and, 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 and you know a couple of ethnic right. minority token people sitting around um, and, and I bet they feel really good about that so what they're doing the two <laughs> evils of economic exploitation and geopolitical hostility are being hidden under this cloak of virtuosity so like the amazing technicolor dream coat of virtual <laughs> things you know look at what we're doing aren't we wonderful aren't we progressive and this is what Nancy Fraser calls progressive neoliberalism mm-hmm. progressivism or whatever <laughs> but uh, that's that you know this is so easy to do mm-hmm. it doesn't cost them anything yeah. No, no effort. It's just changed their hiring practices a little bit. They've got mass media on their side. They're all part of the same cabal. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, the mass media <laughs> do support business. It's a business, you know, they support business interests and and and, and, and off they go. They, they can present themselves as the the progressive future of humanity. Whereas mm. underneath this, they're, they're just the same old corporations doing what mm. corporations do. Yeah. Um, Simon, you you mentioned um, mentioned a, a bit ago about um, uh, liberal versus social. Does um can can businesses claim claim to be liberal? Can they make claims to being liberal, but they can't make claims to being social in in the way that they're in the way that they in in through their business practices? I guess it would be it would be good to, to sometimes I can trip up when it comes to what is liberal, what is social, or what is liberalism, what is socialism. I was just wondering about that, please. Absolutely. Obviously, liberalism is, is rooted in freedom. And so it's very easy for a neoliberal, you know, the head of a corp- huge corporation, to say he's interested in freedom. He's interested mm. principally in economic freedom. Mm-hmm. Cultural freedoms are neither here nor there for a, a dedicated neoliberal. Mm. They're interested in the bottom line. They're interested mm-hmm. in stock prices, profits. You know, so they're entirely, you know, they really don't care too much about progressive liberalism in terms mm-hmm. of cultural freedoms mm-hmm. they're happy to let you know the left run wild in the realm of cultural liberties 
Right. Not willing to budge a millimeter in terms of economic equality. Mm, yeah. What you might, what you what you're suggesting is a social realm. Mm-hmm. Of course, I mean, corporations, the primacy of corporations in the neoliberal uh, worldview has decimated social life, mm-hmm. which was once integrative, where we had things in common. Mm. You all do better. Mm. You know, if you do better, I do better. And I help you because you help me. The reciprocities that are proper to social life, mm-hmm. about caring for one another, altruism, all of that is being squashed out of our experience by rampant neoliberalism that only cares about their own economic freedoms. Right. This right. is what's being lost as we push towards cultural liberalism as a progressive route forward. We march away from economic equality mm. and march towards cultural freedom. Mm-hmm. So we're playing into their hands. Now let's not disconnect the neoliberalism Simon's talking about from classical liberalism, because mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. you know, liberals will say, oh, but that's not real liberalism, neoliberalism. It's a, it's a new horrible appearance, you know, appeared on the horizon. It's, mm. it, it's not true. I mean, John Locke, one of the, the, the architects of classical liberalism, argued that, that the, one of the principal freedoms, if not the principal freedom, is to acquire property. The freedom to acquire and property is, is paramount. And this throughout the 19th century was a stumbling block for the left because this was a firm, was a fundamental liberal belief that couldn't really be shifted. And we, we tried to shift that a little bit in, 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 the, uh, in the 20th century, but mm-hmm. it didn't work. And that belief that, is, that was at the bottom of classical liberalism and is still at the, the heart of neoliberalism. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you so much for Simon as well for explaining that as well. Um, and uh, okay, yeah, so... I want to move on to um, somebody quite famous. Um, you say that one politician who might once have been committed to fundamental change is Jeremy Corbyn. You talk about how the Corbyn project, which pledged to work for the many, not the few, was sideswiped by neoliberal Blairites and cultural activism. While Labour was a serious threat in 2017, by 2019, they were seen as messy, naive and rudderless, was Corbyn an example of too much focus on culture rather than economics? What happened there? Well, it's a fascinating little interlude in the history of neoliberalism's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn's rise, rise to prominence. And I think I'm right in saying we both joined the Labour Party when uh, Corbyn became, mm. in order to vote for Corbyn to become leader. Uh, and of course, it seemed to offer a new dawn, especially in those early days. Mm-hmm. I thought... Of course, had known Corbyn's uh, reputation, uh, you know, very committed activist, uh, a liberal socialist rather than a kind of traditional economic socialist, but, mm. uh, you know, stuck to his guns. I thought he was an admirable character. He told the truth. He wasn't subject to the kinds of spin that had come, become predominant in the Labour Party. Uh, and at the start of his tenure there, he talked a great deal about the kinds of economic changes that would be the, you know, the foundation of a better society. So he talked about uh, national investment banks and reindustrialization, taking real, uh, you know, the public utility, the old utilities back into common ownership. Uh, and these were not only, you know, absolutely fundament- fundamentally leftist social democratic policies that can change things, mm-hmm. they're also incredibly popular. <laughs> no, even the conservative voters, you know, even like 60 odd percent of conservative voters want real back in uh, common ownership. 
<laughs> uh, but it's never discussed as a policy. You know, we've got Keir Starmer saying, all oh, this is impossible, we can't afford it. Right. Absolutely crazy. But Corbyn's economic agenda gradually seemed to move into the background. Um, and of course, this is because of, you know, he finds himself in a position of power. Everybody's trying to drag him in different directions. Mm. And I don't want to minimise the level of hostility that he faced. Certainly mm -hmm. it's the, the, the media hostility to Corbyn is something I've never seen before in a, you know, my adult life. Mm. Nothing, you know, he was bombarded from all points on the political spectrum. Sure. Uh, but the ammunition that really did the damage is, of course, from the liberal left, you know, the Guardian and what, else, yeah. what have you. If Corbyn's a split there, he's leading us to a huge defeat and we have to get rid of him in order to, re, you know, kind of install a, a, a centrist who's going to just carry on the business of neoliberal reproduction. Mm. So I, I had admired Corbyn, but he, he was led astray, I think, and he, he spoke as his leadership continued, he spoke less and less about economic justice and more and more about cultural justice. And I should contextualise that. As he progressed, he simply wasn't given the opportunity to talk about core policy because he was forced to talk about Brexit mm, and also, mm. of course, anti-Semitism as we move towards the 2019 election. And it's a great loss. And I, I you know, I still think he's a, a kind of you know, he, he's committed to his politics and he hasn't really capitulated to, you know, those around him and drag him in a different direction, apart from on Brexit. Mm -hmm. Messed things up, you know, on a monumental scale. He tried to find a middle path and consequently alienated both of the warring factions on Brexit. Right. Uh, and this is the kiss of death for Corbyn. And of course, if he had uh, persevered, especially if he had uh, kind of put the economic stuff that can bond groups together at the front stage and left everything else to the sides, he would have stood a chance uh, of doing well in the 2019 election. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But those kind of socialistic policies about common ownership, redistributive economics, mm -hmm. people like that stuff. And he came very close to upsetting the apple cart in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the reassertion of neoliberal centrism in the form of Keir Starmer mm -hmm. gives an indication that, you know, even, and it's, I don't think Corbyn was particularly radical. Mm. You know, if, if we transport his politics back into the 1960s, you wouldn't have said, my God, this is a revolution. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> really, it wasn't too, wasn't too radical at all. And if you broaden out your frame of historical analysis, but even that kind of gently reformist economic change, was unpalatable neoliberalism and consequently he didn't make it and now we have Starmer you know signed up neoliberalism can't afford to buy back real we have mm -hmm. the tax cut you know this ridiculous myths about kind of fiscal probity that are at the forefront of his kind of economic policies mm. all of this suggests that even that kind of moderate reformism is no longer palatable absolutely yes you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and, and we have Rachel Reeves of, of, of the Labour Party, TM, uh, um, uh, you know, telling us you can't book the markets uh, and that the bankers rule and the credit rating agencies. 
And Simon said that Corbyn got a terrible hard time from terribly hard time from the press. He's absolutely mm-hmm. right. The only times I remember it being worse, and I, I, I wasn't alive at the time, but I, I, I've read transcripts of, of the press attacks on Neuron and Bevan in, in 1945. Uh, of course, the Labour Party then was serious uh, in, in, in the economic dimension, serious proposals about public investment, nationalisation and, and welfare and all the rest of it. And Bevan was described as a stupid Welsh thug who should be sent back down the coal mines. You know, that's the sort of thing that the Tory mm. press was saying. So really, I think Jeremy should be thankful that he's not working class. Otherwise, it would have been even worse. You know, you would have <laughs> got what, what Bevan got back in 1945. But the invective of... of, of, of and let's not forget, this is something from the press, that, that, that some of which um, purports to be left-wing. The Guardian, etc. Mm. Mm. You know, what looked like... I don't, again, I don't want to to, to um, cross the boundary in the conspiracy. They all look like an organised smear campaign <laughs> of the left, uh, li- the liberal press, and right across the political spectrum. Even though yeah. that's not a very wide political spectrum these days, mm-hmm. but right across that spectrum, uh, would seem to be intent on smearing Corbyn out of existence, Definitely. dragging <laughs> stuff about of the past. And 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 the last time this has happened was it was in was in 1945. So serious yeah. economic policies will meet with serious press resistance. Mm. And, and, and that's the problem that, that we haven't solved. Right. Yeah, it was. I remember as a as a newspaper reader during those Corbyn Corbyn days, they were really exciting days, uh, times. And just the frustration of the fact that nobody seemed to have anything good to say about him in the papers. But everybody or I mean, there were plenty of people um that I was talking to who weren't excited, but but um, but yeah, for a lot for a lot of us, my uh, friends and, and and circles and stuff, just that it felt like this is this is the time we're finally getting somewhere. Didn't didn't even know that this was something that could that could be done, and now suddenly here here it comes, and and yet uh, all those newspapers I used to depend on, they they weren't uh, they weren't interested in weren't interested in the slightest, not at all, and 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 to think that. Um... Corbyn's economic policies under John McDonald's leadership uh, 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 were quite weak. Mm. Um, there was no, there was to be no nationalisation. Uh, there was to be, you know, public investment was, I think, limited. Correct me if I'm wrong, to 250 billion, which is uh, w- which is half a peanut, you know, compared to what is really needed to get this country back on its feet to perhaps right. return manufacturing of essential goods, nationalise energy. Uh, rail transport and, and and to start the country working again and mm. that's that's you know not 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 it's a drop in the ocean so mm-hmm. there was that was a very limited economic policy that misunderstood the power of sovereign currency what sovereign currency can do mm-hmm. which we explain in in the final couple of chapters in our book what you know mm-hmm. so a book's not entirely pessimistic at that final mm-hmm. chapter which you, you might want to talk about it, it, Definitely. Is, you know we do propose a program an economic program on, on which the left can move forward mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah uh, thank you um with uh um with the the mention of brexit and while you were talking about uh, corbyn simon um uh i just wanted to talk about the the eu as well then um so the eu has a reputation of progressiveness it's lionized by the left this is thanks in great part to the schengen free movement of people but this freedom is more freedom for the market benefiting richer countries at the expense of poorer ones the UK, for instance, brings in skilled and unskilled labour from other countries, but at the detriment to those countries who have now lost labour. Why does the left still side with the EU? 
Well, it, it's a it's a key point, uh, and of course, it, it it signals the dominance of the cultural left over the economic left, the dominance of right. the middle class over working class. Mm. And I think what you see is, of course, this kind of commitment, a kind of liberal cosmopolitanism that moving is good for the soul, and mm. you know, all be enriched by going and seeing other cultures, and mm. all of that is fine. But especially if you draw it into the context of the EU. Of mm -hmm. course, the people who are moving are the people who can't get jobs in their home countries, mm -hmm. the people who are forced into poverty, so mm -hmm. basic subsistence. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they're forced to move, not because they hate their country and they don't want to hang around with their families and friends anymore and they're sick yep. and they want to experience the thrill of, you know, traveling, mm -hmm. moving over and working in a nightclub toilet in Sunderland. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just nuts. It's just absolutely nuts that it's it, what it's doing is projecting onto a basically apolitical or dieted cultural group, the kind of cultural sensibilities of the middle class liberal left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, you know, any honest evaluation of EU migration will see that poor people, those born into poor areas, are forced to migrate to richer areas that take very poor jobs in the vast majority of cases. And this, right. of course, is obviously connected to capital. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's obviously beneficial to capital. And if we broaden out the scheme of things, you know, you've got um, the COVID pandemic and whatever else, and it was you know, clear that we were, that NHS was dependent upon foreign labour. And of course, mm -hmm. we can be incredibly grateful for the people who you know are so devoted and work in these jobs and i am absolutely grateful but the fact is a nigerian doctor is working in the, in the british nhs he's not mm. working in nigeria mm. and nigeria have a huge shortage of doctors mm. and he's moved mm -hmm. to britain because he wants because the money up you know the, the chances to progress his own material uh, well-being right and i think you know given that we have capacity to train specialized staff in virtually every sphere of our economic life you know we should be thinking the opposite in terms of kind of training doctors to go out in nigeria rather than taking nigerian doctors and bringing them over here mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i think the left has misunderstood immigration i am all for kind of immigration and cultural mixing uh the basic liberal cosmopolitan view of things, but we have to separate that view from the economic realities which underpin the vast majority of migration stories. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. They aren't mm. progressive. In many mm. cases, they're not liberating. Mm. You look at the reality of lots of Eastern European workers who've come over to Britain the last 20 years or so, they don't live particularly fulfilling lives here in Britain. Mm. And uh, in, in many cases, they're eventually forced to move back you know, you know, they, they, they don't feel it so they fit in. Actually, the jobs that they have access to are the really terrible ones, incredibly mm. exploitative. Mm. And it just really beggars belief that the EU is presented to ordinary people as being the kind of last line of defence from the nation slipping into kind of fascism or something like that, some kind of mm. regressive nationalism. Uh, and of course, any honest appraisal of EU activity would have to suggest that the EU has uh, not been particularly progressive in a whole host of political spheres. Mm -hmm. You think really about the rules on traditional leftists would want the state to intervene in the, in the economy and take a managerial role. Of course, EU regulations restrict the ability to, to in, the ability of nation states to invest in the wealth in for the for the public good. 
Uh, and they're forced to balance budgets. And the balance, the idea of a balanced budget is a neoliberal creation. Right. The idea of fiscal responsibility is a product of the dominance of neoliberal orthodoxy for mm. 40 years. Absolutely. We have to tear it down and think again about what we need to do to invest and to build kind of a, an economy that is inclusive and values everybody equally. Right. Right. So I think... Uh, the left has made a huge mistake in kind of presenting the EU as some kind of social democratic wonderland. Because that's <laughs> not the case at all. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would only add that, you know, restricting fiscal spending to 3% of GDP is, is ridiculous. If the state is to have any uh, democratic state is to have any, uh, you know, role in, in economic management and the growth of wealth creation, and then that, that is ludicrous. And just to reinforce what Simon said, you take the mm. example of Bulgaria, the, the heyday of the EU um, a free movement of, of, of labour. Mm -hmm. um, Bulgaria lost Bulgaria lost 26% of its working age population. Wow. That means demand reduces. That means the production goes into slump and Bulgaria goes into a massive recession. Mm -hmm. There was a time in when, when Chicago, there were more Somalian trained doctors in Chicago, working in Chicago, than there were in uh, Somalia. <laughs> Where are the Somalian people going to find a doctor when when they're ill? Right, right. These these problems, and and like Simon, I'm not against migration. Mm -hmm, the migration mm -hmm. is part of history. History is migration, but it was sensible migration. It was migration attached to economic functions, and yeah. and uh, we we have to have a sensible debate about it without simply calling anyone. You know, if anyone asks a question about it, they get called a racist or, or mm. xenophobic. We have to have intelligent discussions, get back to have intelligent, rational discussions about the economic matters. Mm. Financial precarity seems to be a never ending and worsening state. Recently, the pound hit its worst low in 37 years, while inflation has skyrocketed. You say that sovereign nation states needing to borrow their own printed money is a myth. You even say that the word deficit is misleading. What do you mean here? And could an economic left government support its citizens financially in a way that doesn't look possible under our current current government? That's a very big question. <laughs> You'd have to read the <laughs> final chapter of a book to, to get the details. But very, brief, <laughs> very, very briefly, um, the idea that inflation is being caused by printing money is nonsense. The recent hike in inflation being caused by supply side problems. Inflation is mm. always caused by supply side problems, price rises. The deficit is simply the amount of money in circulation that hasn't been taxed back. So why call that a deficit? It's just the money that, that, that the government has put into circulation through private bank loans and, and, and through public spending, mainly private bank loans these, these mm -hmm. days. So if the money in circulation is there to spend on the goods that are being uh, supplied, then you won't get too much inflation. Problem is printing too much money when those goods are going down mm -hmm. and the prices are going up is inflationary. So to blame money printing on, in fact, money printing is a reaction to inflation, is a reaction to supply side problems. Mm. So the government can invest publicly to the extent that it increases productivity and increases the supply of goods. If you increase the supply of goods, then you can have more money in circulation to buy them. Basic, it's you know, mm. common sense. Yeah, this is common sense Keynesian economics. So it, they, they, they get inflation completely wrong. We could have conquered stagflation quite easily by subsidising companies who were using oil in the 1970s. Mm, right. But it's against neoliberal doctrine. It's against mm. neoliberal do dogma, you see. So they misinform everyone about economics. And unfortunately, the Labour Party 
especially under people like McDonald and R Rachel Reeves was in charge of the you know chancellery uh, then we're, we're not going the Labour Party's not going to get us out of this mess until it, 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 it improves its understanding of basic economics right right yeah uh, well um, then I want to talk about the future in that case then uh, if you don't mind um, you say that if the left continues as is our system will only amplify its servitude to corporate and banking elites. We need economic security and the opportunity to work together towards the common good. How? And what does the left need to do? Well, it's a huge, a huge question. I'll just try and be brief. But um, I think the, the left have obviously drifted away from the working class and its principal concern, especially in Britain, should be to reconnect with the interests, economic interests of the working class. To hold out the hand of friendship and to say, we will put at the center of our program, your economic welfare, mm. to address poverty, to address economic insecurity. And of course that goes for all cultural groups that the working class is composed of. Mm. I think we need to kind of backpedal, the left needs to kind of reimagine really its mandate and it should be can put aside those cultural issues. You notice that kind of the, the jousting between uh, political elites across the Western world now is mm. principally about cultural issue. Mm. Should we allow immigration? Should we not allow immigration? What are we doing to address ethnic uh, disparities, gender issues, things like that? I think we need to move beyond those to address the things that are shared between all cultural groups. And then mm. you've got a platform. You've got something to build upon. Mm. Well, the first step is to drag ourselves clear of neoliberal orthodoxy. Mm. And that just takes a little bit of nous to understand how the economic system works. Right. And of course, a lot of balls. You have to see <laughs> move beyond the established orthodoxy. I'm going to, we're heading off in a different direction. And to ignore the spin doctors and those who are going to tell you about, you know, what, how the public are reacting to the tiny fluctuations in political life. Mm -hmm. Actually, be dedicated to a program and you know see it through and i think the foundation of that has to be about economic in, uh, inclusion mm -hmm, mm -hmm. policies of the left have to be about addressing obvious forms of material disadvantage present in all western countries yeah it should be at the forefront about and everybody will benefit it's not just well, well we'll help the poor because everybody will benefit from an, a shift in our economic focus and I don't think that's possible. I'll be absolutely honest. I don't think the Labour Party is going to head in that direction. Mm. So the Democratic Party in the States isn't heading in that direction. I don't think mm -hmm. any of the European left-leaning parties are heading in that direction. Mm -hmm. I think really what we have to do is begin to think about how we build something new in the place where you know the left, the true left, once stood. Right. I see kind of the development of radicalism, intelligent working class, uh, political activism in the trade union movement. Mm -hmm. uh, all of this boards well. You know, working class people will can see someone like uh, uh, Eddie Dempsey or, you know, Lynch mm -hmm. talking about issues that immediately make sense to them and get behind right. that as a process. Yeah. How you draw people in. Yes, he's talking about issues that affect me. He's trying to represent my interests and people like me. Mm. But that those those issues cut across ethnicity and gender. Mm, mm -hmm. So this is, I think, you know, how we can be, begin to build something new where the left once stood. Either that or some kind of revolution in the main political parties that really 
are determined, a new generation determined to drag things in a different direction. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, the only small thing I would add to that is that if we're going to do what Simon says in an era of global warming where we need a green agenda, the corporations aren't going to do that when they can still make profits, big profits out of oil mm -hmm. and gas. And, and, sure. and the, you know, we, we need that economic management. We need a rational, sensible left willing to manage the economy and push it in that direction towards hydrogen and, 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 and renewables and perhaps even safe nuclear power, etc. So we need that left more than ever, even in the broad sense. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, well, uh, Steve, Simon, thanks so much for coming on the Transforming Society podcast today. That's it okay. was uh, a brilliant read and an absolute it. pleasure to talk to you. Oh, great. Well, thanks very much. The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin from the Beginning Again by Simon Winlow and Steve Hall is published by Policy Press. You can find out more about their book by visiting policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also by going to transformingsociety.co.uk.